Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 62 for October 27th, 2011. So we're finishing up our first year of comic books uh, that came out in uh, 1989 and 1990. Uh, these were all by DC. So we're finishing off that publishing year with the first set of annuals. So this is Star Trek, the original series, annual number one and Next Generation annual number one. Very good. And they have a common theme in that they're both written by famous uh, Star Trek thespians. Yes. You'd think the actors wouldn't do as quite as good a job writing, but I think both of these are pretty well written. Yeah, both of them have uh, – well, especially – I think both of them say that they are co-written by you know Peter David or Michael Jan Friedman. So they, it's – I don't they, know. They say it a bit more with uh, George Takei's script. Right. Uh, because if you take a look – well, we'll get into it. But if you look at the uh, the next-gen one written by John Delancey, yes, Q, it says additional dialogue by Michael Jan Friedman. Right. So, yeah, so we It sounds did... like he helped out with some of the dialogue, but I guess a lot of the story was by, uh, by Delancey. Yeah, so uh... – on a personal note, I tried to find out from George Decay himself how much of this he wrote and how much of it he uh, – that Peter David wrote uh, at a comic book convention here recently. Um, but uh, when I went to talk to talk to him, uh, he was giving <laughs> – he was uh, autographing something for me. And uh, as I was asking him, so if, do you have any remembrances of writing this book? And he's – started to think about it for a second. He's like, oh, it was uh, late 1989 or early 1990. And and then before he could (laughs) tell me anything, uh, one of his handlers came over and was like, "Uh, Mr. Takei, there's a lot of people here in line. Uh, You need to move it along. (laughs) And uh, you could tell that George Takei is just a super nice guy because he was signing the, uh, the comic book and then he was thinking some more and he was like he was trying to tell me something that was coming to mind and then again the handler would every time he every time he stopped writing on the comic book the handler was over there uh mr k there's really a long line (laughs) (laughs) but you could tell he he really wanted to you know be more personable that's great yeah it was it was a good time that's the first time i've ever uh sought out an autograph like that so well when i was in high school and my first at my first star trek convention I had gotten uh, George to sign a photo for me. It was very nice of him. He was a much younger man, and so was I. Um, and uh, I, I didn't have guts enough to ask him a thing. I just, oh, thank you, Mr. K. Thank you. And I move along. But <laughs> things were moving along with a pretty good, at a pretty good clip there too. Uh, yeah. Grace, Grace Lee Whitney was also at that, and I had gotten her to sign something. Very nice. Okay. And uh, things were moving pretty, pretty quick for Yeoman Rand too. Yeah, you know, yeah, w- with George Takei, you could tell he wanted to be more personable, and, yeah. and he he just always wants to tell you a story, it seemed like, <laughs> and uh, it was just kind of, because 
it, the same thing was happening with all the people in front of me. I could tell that he would start to tell them something and then get rushed rushed along. Yeah, which, which is you unfortunate. Know, yeah, well, there's but a, there you, was a lot of If you were in the people. back of the line, if you were in the back of the line, you'd probably appreciate that handler wh- cracking the whip on him. But right, yeah, I was in the back of the line for a while, so I, I totally get it. And he only had a certain window before he had to go do a, exactly. a photo shoot or something. So right, not everybody was going to get to see him. So. I understand why he had to uh, move us along. I waited a line for a long time in Phoenix to get uh, Steve Nash's autograph, basketball player for the Phoenix Suns. And I waited there forever outside because the line was outside. And I didn't even get in the door of the place before they said, sorry, we've ran out of time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for playing our game. So uh, how long were you in line? Oh, like two hours. Ouch. Because I was trying to get this, you know, basketball signed for the kids and stuff, you know, right, that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, cool. it, it was funny. We we waited in line for uh, probably about forty five minutes before we actually got up there to see him. And by that time, my son, who's only five years old, was pretty pretty bored. And when we went to go, uh, and when we were right in front of George Takei and he was signing the comic book, my son puts his head on the on the desk right in front of him and just kind of like looking up at him with these puppy dog eyes. <laughs> and, then, and your son is a very cute kid. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And then George Takei was like, oh, are you bored? And he was like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> not quite a trekker yet. Not what I wanted him to say, but but George Takei was like, oh, I would be too if my, fam- if my parents brought me here. I mean, he was <laughs> super nice about it. <laughs> That's great. So it was a very good experience. I was I was glad we did it. Good. And I got a nice little memento of his, uh, of his signature. Saying, actually, actually, the comic book he wrote get his signature. And you also had him address it to uh, the comic book review, too. Yep. So Very cool. I'll, I'll always have a little piece of memorabilia about this here show. Yes, and I have great uh, thanks to Donovan because he got one for me, too. Yeah, it was Thank funny. You, he thought, he thought uh, my son was Ken. He's like, oh, is this Ken? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you should have told me. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. I probably should have, but... Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. So, but anyways, back to the story. Yeah, back to the story. So, uh, I got the pleasure of uh, synopsizing annual number one. So, Excellent. I'll go ahead and do so now. Uh, I don't know exactly what month these came out. They all have just a cover date of 1990, so we'll just go with that. Uh, the co-writer was George Takei. Co-writer was also Peter David, artist uh, Gray Morrow, letterer Bob Pinaha, colorist Tom McCraw, editor Robert Greenberger. And the title of this issue is So Near the Touch. So we start off with the cover, and uh, it's a very busy cover, so please bear with me. And it's also a very long book, so please bear with me on that one as well. So the cover has – and again, this is very busy, so just go with it. Uh, there's actually several headshots kind of right in the middle. Uh, one of them, obviously the most prominent one, is of Sulu. Uh, beneath him is a beautiful young Asian woman, and to her left is uh, Chekhov. And then below them is a mysterious bearded man. And in the upper right, we see Sulu and a robed figure fighting with some trident-looking weapons. Beneath that is Kirk in a standing position. And 
behind Kirk is a man and woman embracing in an inferno of fire. And in the bottom, we see a picture of the Enterprise uh, in orbit of a planet. And then to the left of that, we see like this weird city with a long road and a whole bunch of people standing in line. Kind of like I was standing in line at the comic book convention to get George's signature. Anyway, so the story opens up on a bleak world that is all brown and muddy. People are trudging along in the streets, and the text on the page is giving us an explanation of what yin and yang are, and several analogies to that concept. Yin and yang is obviously uh, two halves of the same uh, thing, and that they're always together and always apart. So we see that the people walking are split into two groups, men on one side and women on the other. Just then, one of the women happens to recognize one of the men passing on the other side of the street. In excitement of seeing each other, they break rank and rush towards each other. And they start embracing there in the middle of the street. Uh, the other men and women are trying to stop them, but it's too late. The two lovers burst in the flames while kissing. A man in robe shows up, and he starts to draw a picture in the ashes, and he states... They have gone to meet their reward. And then he says, this was meant to be. So a very uh, gloom and doom situation. So back on the Enterprise, in a complete contrast to what we just have, uh, we see Sulu the Magnificent performing his amazing illusions. Uh, he is attempting to saw Chekhov into two pieces. And Chekhov is obviously in a, in a big box with uh, Sulu with a big um, saw and Ahura is acting as the magician's assistant complete in a leopard looking unitard or leotard. I think it's leopard. Yeah, kind of. Anyways, uh, the very apprehensive checkoff is eventually solid in half. Uh, just then there's an emergency call from Starfleet and Kirk, Spock, McCoy and Sulu have to leave. And they leave poor Chekhov there on stage, staring at his own disconnected feet. So in the briefing room, or actually I think it's Kirk's quarters, uh, Starfleet is letting them know that they have a mission for the Enterprise. We learn that there is a planet called Datu God. This planet has been uh, destroyed by the inhabitants who have overmined the planet for some valuable trimanium over the last uh, several years. The living beings on the planet have developed an illness that causes spontaneous combustion when they embrace, as we saw earlier. Uh, relocation is not an option since it is a genetic defect. Uh, the illness cannot be cured in the living at all. So the idea is for Starfleet to create a new generation of these people by growing them in labs and then relocating them to a new world where they'll restart their culture. We're introduced to a young Asian woman named Korazan Kowanko. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so we're introduced to her, and we find out that Sulu seems to know her very well. They have nicknames for each other, Yin and Yang. Uh, Korazan is actually the head of the whole project. So during the meeting, Sulu begins to daydream, and we are treated to a flashback. So Sulu is on Starbase 27. It's a short time before Star Trek II, and Sulu is between assignments. And he's about to return to Earth to begin working at the Academy. 
Sulu is awakened early by Kirk via communication. Unable to go back to sleep, Sulu leaves his room to grab some breakfast and bumps into a younger Corazon as she is out for a jog. Then the two of them have some, or actually it's more Corazon towards Sulu, but some uh, unkindly comments are made, and Corazon is off running again. But Sulu notices that she dropped her pin. He attempts to run after her to give it back, but he's unable to keep up. Sulu is snapped out of his revelry by Spock and Kirk. They finish the meeting with Starfleet and ask Sulu how he knows Corazon. He declines to discuss the personal story and leaves. On the planet, the ruling council is being lectured by the religious sect about the upcoming relocation of their species. The religious figures feel that this is an outrage against their beliefs, but the ruling council does not relent. Back on the Enterprise, Sulu is still recalling his past with Corazon. This is another flashback. So he's returning her pen. They discuss the concepts of yin and yang. They go out for dinner. And the next day, Sulu starts to join her for the morning jogs. Eventually, one thing leads to another. Let your mind wander with that one. Then Sulu is literally snapped out of his remembrances by Chekhov, who literally snaps in his face, (laughs) which is quite funny. Um, So he snaps him awake just as things were getting good. Sulu informs the captain that they'll be arriving in 11 hours at the rendezvous with Dr. Corazon and her team. Later, the medical team are beamed aboard. Sulu is part of the welcoming party and gives chocolates to Corazon. During the next several days it takes to get to Datugad, Sulu and Corazon rekindle their relationship with jogging, fencing, and special sleepovers after a bottle of champagne. They eventually arrive to the planet, and the council advises Kirk that the minimum number of people should beam down, and they recommend that only the medical team. Uh, That's due to the obvious infectious condition of the planet. Kirk states that a security team will also be accompanying them. In the transporter room, Scotty provides portable shield life belts uh, to the crew that are beaming down. These belts will provide a barrier so that they will not contract the combustion disease. Corazon and her team arrive on the planet and are greeted by the ruling council. Before too long, a riot ensues and the religious uh, figures kidnap the Starfleet personnel. During the kidnapping, uh, two of the fighting men are engulfed in flames due to them being in too close of proximity. This is a revelation to Corazon, who thought that it was only uh, the same uh, opposite genders getting too close would cause the uh, combustion. So now we just know that it's if anybody gets too close. Kirk and the crew hear hear about the kidnapping uh, when the comm channel is opened in the struggle, and uh, one of the crew members was attempting to contact help. Sulu wants to rush off to rescue them. Kirk denies. Kirk eventually is contacted by the ruling council and is informed that the sect has kidnapped the Starfleet personnel and they are going to start killing them unless uh, the Federation plan is stopped. And then, obviously, he, they, they let Kirk think about that for a while. All right, so Sulu wants to rush off and rescue them, but Kirk denies. 
Kirk eventually is contacted by the ruling council and is informed that this that the sect that did the kidnapping is against the Federation plan of reseeding their culture to another planet. Uh, very shortly after that, Kirk is contacted by the religious leader named Shem. He demands that the Federation call off their plan and allow their civilization to die. He states that he will start to kill the hostages one at a time until they relent. Kirk tries to stall and allow Scotty to lock onto the signal and beam Shem aboard, but they are unsuccessful due to Shem's shielded location. Shem closes the communication. Kirk contacts Starfleet and is informed that they are to do nothing until a negotiation team can arrive. Sulu tries again to get help to Corazon, but again is denied. Shortly after the meeting, Sulu head, is heading straight towards the armory. Chekhov uh, uh, tries to half-heartedly stop him, but ends up deciding that he will go with him. Back on the bridge, Kirk is contacted again by Shem. Shem asks for a good faith gesture. Uh, he asks for Kirk to destroy the medical center that's holding the embryos for the reseeding process. Kirk refuses, and Shem disconnects. Shem is now planning to kill one of the hostages. He gives the honor to his second-in-command, whose name is Donner. Donner will be allowed to choose one of the female hostages, strip her of her belt, and then once she's infected with the combustion disease, he will have his way with her until they both are consumed by the fire. Donner makes his choice of a young blonde woman who starts to scream, No! Back on the Enterprise, Chekhov, Sulu, and a security team leave the Enterprise via a shuttle. The security team do not know that they are on an unauthorized mission. On the bridge, Kirk and Spock watch the shuttle leave, but do not make any attempt to stop it. The shuttle arrives at Shem's shielded base. Shem, uh, Sulu uses a bazooka-like weapon to break through just long enough for them to jump through the shields. Once inside, a firefight ensues. Sulu is able to break away from the conflict uh, to try to find Corazon on his own. Uh, he stumbles across a, a guard of some sort, and there's a long hand-to-hand -hand fight uh, between the two of them with some odd pike weapons, like the ones that we saw on the cover. Sulu eventually finds Shem and the hostages. And then another hand-to-hand -hand fight ensues between Shem and Sulu, with Sh Sulu eventually beating him. Shem pleads with Sulu and states that if the Federation only knew how bad it was to live here, they would understand what they're fighting for. Sulu takes him up on the off, uh, challenge and takes off his belt. After a few deep breaths, Sulu chases Shem around, threatening to hug him. Shem screams, I don't want to die. Sulu chases him into a corner just as he's about to embrace uh, Shem. Uh, we hear Corazon yelling, Sulu, behind you! Sulu twirls around and sees Donner holding a phaser at him. Donner fires the phaser but hits Shem instead of Sulu. Donner lets them all go, obviously disillusioned by his leader's exclamations about living after he's been preaching death for so long. Sulu rushes to Corazon, but she stops him, reminding him of the combustion problem. Sulu shows off his trickery and shows that he had two belts on the whole time and that he was only bluffing Shem. Still crying, Corazon reveals that when Donner chose the blonde woman, she took her place and had her belt removed instead. 
she will have to stay on the planet forever. Later on the Enterprise, Kirk talks to Sulu about his actions. He says that he will have to be reprimanded, but now is not the time. And then the final page shows Corazon on the dreary planet, and she's drawing a yin and yang symbol in the dust. The end. Aww. Sad. Kind of ends on a bummer. You ain't kidding. The drag for uh, yin. You. It's not good. Yeah. Well, I mean. So not good for she, Sulu either. Maybe she can find a cure while she's there living there for the rest of her life. <laughs> she certainly has motivation. <laughs> She'll have that going for her. Uh, yeah. But, of course, you knew they couldn't be together. And, of course, because uh, you know his history going on to be captain of the Excelsior and everything. But, right. um, I mean, from the beginning, Yin, Yin said that this is not going to work. Um, she correctly recognized that, you know, they have very different careers, career-oriented. But she didn't realize exactly how seriously correct she was <laughs> uh, when she became uh, exposed to this pollution that caused the problem. Oh, well. So what did you think about the problem itself? The If you strip mine a planet or treat a planet bad enough that eventually you'll develop a disease that will cause you to spontaneously combust if you get in too close a contact with another person? Well, um, I think the details of that, the uh, spontaneous combustion, is BS. How, Of course. However, the idea of... Um, being so extreme in abusing the environment until finally, you know, it becomes unlivable um, <laughs> or the quality of life becomes just so low that it's like it's not worth, you know, worth being in there anymore. I do agree with that. That's very possible. But obviously, uh, Sulu had a couple of or <laughs> Sulu. Obviously, George was trying to do a couple of things here. And one definitely was an, was an anti-pollution message. An anti-pollution message, yes. And what was the other one? Uh, Anti-religious extremism is another one. Uh, okay, I guess I could see that. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, th those were the heavies. I mean, well, I mean, it, yeah, was, it was but... man versus environment, but very much the man versus man was the extremism that uh, of, of the religious guys, the big heavy, the big bad. Who was willing to let his whole uh, his his whole race uh, crater uh, because of uh, when there was an option? But yeah, but the option is is so unfeasible that I I didn't even understand why they were considering it. I mean, you're talking about well, what's unfeasible about it? Well, I mean, I, I, they I wouldn't mean, be the same people. I mean, how well, how I'll agree with that? But you're basically talking about getting. You're, talk, you're about taking the generic exactly. So basically, taking the the genetic material. I mean the. I mean they are going to be genetically this race. The only thing is the whole idea of of raising them with their culture, with none of their own people around. Exactly. I agree that that part's kind of. Eh. Right. Yeah. That that doesn't seem very very likely. Yeah, so they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't be the same culture. They would be a, an yeah. offshoot of that culture. Yeah, it would probably be a combination of that culture and whoever was raising them. Odds are a federation culture. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it just that, – I, I don't know. I didn't really care for that part of yeah. the uh, solution. Right. Well, did you think of any better solutions? Yeah, fix it. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, and probably one of the best people there, uh, other than Dr. McCoy himself, uh, is got a lot of motivation to try to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Dr. McCoy, he had absolutely almost nothing to do with this this whole story. Not a lot. He was just there a couple of times. He was there in supportive uh, of the doctor's activities. Right. Uh, Dr. Kowanko. <laughs> that's that's a heck of a name. Um, yeah, he was supportive. That, that was about it. I mean, the biggest thing uh, that McCoy did for this this issue is uh, change hair color. Other than that, you know. Did he go back to gray or something? Well, in the first half of it, his hair is an inhuman khaki color. Okay. Take same, a look. Same as Scotty's. Uh, oh, is Scotty's that color too? Let me take a look at that. I did not yeah. notice that. I definitely, uh, I definitely noticed that right away when I saw McCoy. It's like, oh my god. I mean, okay, gray. Okay, I get that. Or his traditional dark brown, black hair. Okay, fine. I get all that. But as soon as I saw him, as soon as they showed him, it was like, that's not normal. <laughs> I mean, that even for a human being, that color is not normal. <laughs> It it, it it looks like a light, a, like almost a really really light caramel tan kind of sort of color, and then it then it, at the very beginning, and then in other scenes it looks like it's khaki. Huh. Well, I, I didn't notice it as much. Yeah, it, it's just not human. And then uh, so Scotty, I'm looking for a Scotty. Well, like on the very first page, on page five, where it has Sulu cutting Chekhov in half. Okay. It. On the far right, it has a it has a Scotty. Oh and no! McCoy. Well, but, yeah, but Scotty's got gray hair in that picture. McCoy has khaki color hair. Uh, I mean, you don't see the difference in that hair color. Uh, it's very slight. Oh, I don't know if I don't, it, I don't, I don't know if the DVD one's gray and one is uh and one's like a tan khaki. Eh, maybe. All right, I get you. It well, does course, look weird. I, I'm looking at a. Uh, as a, at a PDF image from the DVD. I don't know. Right. Maybe – and you're looking at the real book. I'm looking at the real book. Well, okay. So you, you're one up on me. I don't have a real book to look at. Maybe <laughs> right. something in the scanning process, although – I guess I can see the difference. Okay. I'll give you that. Okay. It, it, it was just distracting for me. Right. So uh, can I take a step back about the uh, messages that, that – uh, you think George Decay had with this uh, story? Sure. Uh, the one that I kept thinking about was uh, Forbidden Love. Forbidden Love. Cool. Yeah, that uh, you're on a planet where you ah, you can't love anybody. Right, right, right. And if you do, you're you're fried, burned. Yep. And you know this. And maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but this this came out before George came out of the closet. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So I'm wondering if you know this is you know kind of a, an allusion to uh, to what he was going through. Where yeah, it might be. Of course, in this case, rather than it being societal and something we're 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 placing on ourselves, it's a physical problem that keeps people from doing it. Exactly. Not societal at all. Um, but it, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. That's what I was thinking, and then when Sulu was running around chasing Shem, uh, that's when I thought it got a little slapsticky. I thought. <laughs> well, I mean, definitely no two ways about it. Um, 
<laughs> George wrote himself uh, a, a hero story. No two ways about it. Sure. But he had him beaten. He had Shem beaten with uh-huh. the with the weapons. He I didn't did, really but... understand why they needed to do the I'm going to expose myself kind of, you know, you're going to think I am. And then I'm going to hug you till you burn up. Well, in the end, it exposed him as a coward. Yeah, but how did he? Now, he now had no did idea Sulu, of knowing that. Well, because in the end, what I mean in the and really, okay. So in the end, he could have saved everybody. He could have got everybody back to the Enterprise, and nothing would have been different. There True. still would have been a, a religious fanatic who was getting it, drumming up enough support that the whole thing was going to crater. Uh, I mean, the whole effort of trying to trying to trying to save at least some vestige of this doomed race. Right. Um, but if things didn't work out the way they did, and Sulu didn't do the creepy kind of I want to hug you thing, um, you know, there wouldn't have been a solution. A, a better solution, anyway. So, yeah. But, but yeah, but was that Sulu's plan all along? It's like, that seems pretty unlikely. I agree with you. Yeah. I thought it was, I just thought that was a little odd. Yeah. How about that Galileo uh, 5, huh? The one without any type of engines? I, no nacelles, at least no outboard nacelles. And I didn't see – I mean, th- th- there's like a thing on the back with a big hole in it. I mean, is that the engine, that that little extra thing coming out the back? No, that's actually the uh, – this this shuttle looks like what uh, Spock rode in in, in Star Trek the emotion, the original. It does um, kind of look like a little bit. Yeah. And that, and if, if that if that is it, then that was like a little um, docking port. Oh right, gotcha. Oh, that's where they got it from. They got it from the original mo- uh, the motion picture. Hmm. Right. Because uh, I did not recognize it. Um, no nacelles. I mean, even in the um, the original Trek movies, original cast movies, um, I just didn't recognize it. Yeah, and there's no windows at all. So where there should be like a, a normal window that we see in all other um, in shuttle front. pods, there's a big five. <laughs> oh, is that the front of it? I think so. Is it not? I mean, it's. I assume you're looking at page forty. Oh yeah, you're. Right. I'm looking at page thirty-eight. Oh well, I'm looking at page forty. Oh maybe, yeah, page uh, forty. No, right? No, thirty-eight. We're on thirty-eight. Right. Right. So on thirty-eight, you you are completely right about that. No, oh, but but look, but the, okay, so the docking port's missing. So, well, the, and, and of course, this, this. I mean, if you guys don't have the um, the comic, you probably don't know what the heck we're talking about. But <laughs> um, it, definitely, it's an odd design, and the the docking port that's on the back of it that we mentioned at first is it's kind of it's kind of like a box tacked onto the back of this wedge shape kind of shaped shuttle. But uh, we're looking at them as they're in space, away from the Enterprise, and that. That docking thing in the back isn't there anymore. Well, it might be in the back. You just can't see it. Well, but but the ankle on page 38, we're looking at it, where the big five's in the front. Right. I mean, I assume that that was the back when I first saw that. And that, but you're right. That is, um, that's the front. Right. Uh, but then the docking thing in the back, it, it doesn't Yeah, you should, you should see a little bit of you it jutting out. You should see some, some of it. I completely yeah. agree. That, that. That is a weird ass design. It even is more weird. so. I'm sorry. A weird, weird design. <laughs> even more so than I first thought. Good point. Yeah. Anyway. So since we're on page forty, uh, don't you think it's odd that all the uh, explosion art uh, isn't colored? 
or even drawn that well. When they're shooting the shields, it looks like there should be a big explosion there, but it's just kind of like a little couple of lines. And even when Sulu shoots the uh, grenade or the uh, bazooka thing at it, it it's like the you art mean, is missing. You mean the phaser cannon? Love the phaser cannon. <laughs> it, it does look like a bazooka. It looks like a bazooka. It's a portable phaser cannon. But it and even the, has like exhaust is, coming out of exactly, the back. Exactly. That's my comment. <laughs> He's shooting this thing, which is what takes down the uh, the shields. Fa- Mast phaser fire wasn't enough, but this. Uh, this phaser cannon is. Um, but as he's shooting it, there is exhaust coming out the back like it's a rocket launcher. And it's like, it's a phaser. But it, the artwork at the front, where the phaser part's coming out, yeah. it's not drawn. It's drawn, but it's not colored in. What it looked, it, I completely agree with you. It looks like somebody took a few um, colored pencils or crayons. Take, take your pick. And it looks like somebody took... Um, a picture that does not have explosions, does not have uh, the phaser beams coming out, and they just kind of drew it in a rather childish way, if I may say so. And then that, that right below the panel, where um, to, below and to the left of when Sulu's shooting it, um, uh-huh. it shows a guy on the other side, and his panel is exploding. Right. But it's just like this big empty piece of art, yep. and just with a couple of those little... Um, pencil drawings like Ken was just talking about. Yeah, and and there's almost like little things that look like little flowers or something. Yeah, but actually, it just it just is odd. Yeah, I think I'm thinking that you know the artist did that with the expectation that that would be filled in with um, something else, right? With some graphic or whatever, right. some some you know some fancy explosions, but uh, for whatever reason, it slipped by. Right. Looked odd. Yeah. You know another thing that's odd on those pages? Uh, no. What? The uh, security guys that are probably trying to be a little more covert have, at least not all of them, but many of them, have orange colored shirts on. Now, mind you, what everybody's, the, the, the SWAT team, the attack team, basically have their normal shirts on, I guess, you know, the, the turtleneck kind of thing, without mm-hmm. their red tunic jackets on top. Right. But even so, and even if orange is a normal color, and that maybe it is, do you really want to go on a commando mission or something with <laughs> with an orange shirt on, a bright orange shirt? I don't think so. Well, when they're out on the uh, planet, it's, their shirts are red, and even one of their faces is red. And then when they get inside the building, it turns orange. Oh, I see what you, I see what you're saying. So I yeah, there's saying. there's quite a bit coloring inconsistencies here. Not just McCoy's hair. <laughs> How true. Yeah. So artwork, little it, overall, I thought it was pretty good. But yeah, there are certain parts that are just just Sorry. weird. And I don't know if it was the artwork or just the coloring. Yeah. And it, it could have been just a printing thing, not necessarily uh, Tom McCraw's fault, because I think he's he usually does a pretty good job sure. in all the other books we've read of his. Sure. So a lot of moving parts when it comes to comic books and, you know, something like that. I don't know if you could necessarily blame him for. Right. Agreed. So in addition to uh, – er, separate from art, if you, if I may, um, what did you think about the execution style where they were basically going to infect somebody with the disease and then rape them to death? Uh, 
<laughs> that was weird. That was like, oh man. Okay, so so George, you you want us to hate these people? Okay, <laughs> I get that. Um, it's just it does it just seems a little overboard. And by the way, combustion happens so quick with these people, you wouldn't be able to get very far. I, I get the feeling. Yeah, but he's he's never been able to get that far. I mean. It doesn't really explain <laughs> how many – I mean obviously this has to be the first generation that's had this problem, and that would explain why there's no little well, running around. Yeah. Well, you can't have it. I mean once this really kicks in and everybody's in, infected with this stuff, yeah, that's the first and last generation that's going to have this. If so. if they uh, if they did have a, a, a baby, a test tube baby – I mean, if they put the embryo inside of one of the women, would that induce a uh, explosion? I didn't quite understand why they had to do the whole move away from the planet. Aside from they, you know, it sucks to be there. <laughs> well, they didn't want to be. I, I thought they didn't want to be exposed to the uh, to the air. Right. So as long as you had a, a hermetically sealed um, environment, uh, a building or something that you kept. Uh, the children in they I guess they wouldn't have to be in a on a different planet, yeah. but that yeah. wouldn't be much of a life, would it be? Yeah, no. But anyways, that's not what I want to talk about. Raping Pass. somebody to death. Raping somebody to death. Yes. That was horrible. That was bad. In fact, and, I and had it, to reread it because I was like, no, I didn't. That's not what he just said. Yeah. Yeah. Have your way with her until you die. Nope, yeah. that's what he said. Which again wouldn't be that far. <laughs> wouldn't be that long. <laughs> you wouldn't be having your way that long the way these people go up. And yeah, it's like I thought it was unnecessary. I mean, yeah. you already you already didn't like these people. What? Why did you have to take it that far? Yeah, but Donner, for his credit, does redeem himself at the end by killing Shem and releasing everybody. Yeah, I will agree. And the fact that he's going to do that gives um, gives uh, Yin. And and by the way, that, that's what they call each other. If we didn't say it before, uh, Sulu and uh, uh, Doctor uh, Kowanko <laughs> uh, Yin. Um, it gives Yin even more of a reason of trying to protect her by taking right. her belt off instead. But a little additional motivation. Plus, right. that makes her a bigger, you know, an even more selfless, admirable person. But still, yeah, it still sucks for Sulu. Sucks for Sulu. Sucks for her. Although she was, you know, she was a little bit of a, you know, I, should I use the B word? No, no, I'm not going to no. do that. She wasn't very nice on well, Starbase 27. at first. Yeah. Yeah, at first. All right. So that was all I had. Um, I, I liked the issue. I thought it was good. Um, just just the, uh, the raping I thought was a little much, but oh well. Yeah, and my last comment is just um, how incredible – that Kirk and Spock held back and let Chekhov and Sulu have all the fun. You can tell this is not a Shat production with that going on. <laughs> well, not only that, but I love that, and this is a direct quote from uh, Kirk. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he's talking about uh, Sulu coming to teach at the academy. He says, this is purely temporary, of course. Uh, until you get a command of your own, richly deserved command. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think Shatner would have said that. No. <laughs> and in fact, didn't 
didn't uh, George Takei say something along the lines about um, Shatner maybe purposely doing a scene different uh, right. in one of the movies that w- that was acknowledging? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it was. I think it was in Star Trek Four when when they come home and they get the Enterprise A. Right. They were supposed to be a little prologue or whatever where uh, you find out that Sulu's not going to the Enterprise, but he's going to the Excelsior. Right. But he purposely – or according to Sulu, that he per- according to George, George K, <laughs> he purposely messed up the, the scene so that uh, they couldn't use it. He, exactly. He actually screwed up the scene in his acting to, 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 to make it so they could, not, they could not use that scene in the film. Yeah, which I've never seen the scene, so I don't know, you know, you don't want to take one person's word for it over no. somebody else's, especially when you don't know either one of them. Right. But well, he, come on. I think you know what a nice guy George is. He uh, is a super nice guy. And, I, and I've never had some first-hand contact with... Uh, the Shat? With the Shat, but... Oh, uh, did you ever hear um, uh, Wesley... Uh... <laughs> George or uh, uh, Will Wheaton. Wheaton. So yeah. Will Wheaton did a, a blog post about him meeting Shatner for the first time. Yeah. When he was filming uh, Next Gen, and they were uh, in, in a nearby um, studio or soundstage, whatever. Right. Uh, they they were filming one of the movies, and so I guess he was geek enough back then. He was a Star Trek fan or whatever. He tried to go and talk to Shatner, uh, and uh, and he wasn't treated well. By the chat. Well, that's unfortunate. Yes. Yeah, my wife. Uh, my wife follows Will Wheaton. She's a big fan, oh, and uh, she would. She told me. She told me about that. Yeah. Okay. I won't say what uh, what Wheaton said exactly, but he was not. Uh, he was using some expletives. Yeah. Well, uh, I think a lot of people have uh, expressed their disgruntledness to Shatner. Yeah, that's too bad. In fact. George Takei made a couple of zingers uh, at the. Uh, they did a Q and A over here at the uh, convention, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he had nothing but nice things to say about Leonard Nimoy, and he was talking about how Leonard Nimoy went to bat for um, for them uh, during the Star Trek the animated series because uh-huh. they didn't they didn't want uh, uh, anybody but the main three and um, Scotty on the on the animated show. Oh, really? To save costs or something? Yeah, to save costs. And then Leonard Nimoy was like, well, if you don't want a diverse crew on the Enterprise, then you don't need me either. Ah, <laughs> good and man. And he's like, if, if, uh, if, if the whole cast can't come, then, then I'm out. Hmm. And then so they, they brought in um, George Takei and uh, Michelle Nichols. Didn't say why uh, uh, Walter Koning didn't, didn't get to come didn't on. Didn't make the so cut, but... Maybe that was a... Uh, Concession. <laughs> Concession. Yeah. Sucks for Walter. Yeah, exactly. They got to draw the line somewhere. Some, somewhere. Sorry, Walter. But, he, he, but, but to, to Shatner's part, the zinger towards Shatner was that he was talking about how um, everybody had – or how Shatner always lost his shirt. He's, <laughs> like, he's like, but did you notice that he only loses part of his shirt, the upper part? He's like, uh, <laughs> he's like they couldn't take off his her, his whole shirt because uh, he had a special undergarment under there. Uh, <laughs> I think you ladies call it a girdle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> it was hilarious. That's good. 
it was very good. All right, that was uh, my last side note about that uh, convention. Okay. <laughs> cool, and that's uh, that's a very cool convention. Okay, so shall we move on to the next gen annual? Yes, let's let's see what John Delancey has to say. Oh yes. Okay, so this is titled "The Gift." And it is indeed the Next Gen Annual Number One from 1990, and the creative team is writer John Delancey with additional dialogue by Jan Michael Friedman. Penciler is Pablo Marcos. Bob Pinaha, who does get around, is the letterer. Colorist is Juliana Ferreter. Uh, Robert Greenberger. The cover shows close-ups of the Enterprise D as the backdrop for Q in a Starfleet captain's uniform, and Picard. Below is a cityscape of Paris, of the future, complete with the Eiffel Tower and stylish, futuristic-looking buildings. In the lower left corner, we see text telling us the issue's title is The Gift, and that it is written by John Delancey and drawn by Gordon Purcell and Pablo Marcus. The title page shows a fiery comet-looking object streaking across the page. It seems to have a subliminal, angry face on its center. Text in the upper portion of the page recites a 20th century school rhyme. Every silver lining has a dark, dark cloud. Always after sunshine comes the rain. They say that after the night, the dawn is sure to be bright, but don't forget, the night will come again. The story opens in Picard's office with number one reminding him of the party that is about to begin. Picard is distracted and looking at what appears to be a picture in a frame. Riker reminds Picard that the crew has put a lot of effort into the event, and he really should attend. Picard apologizes and says he is thinking about something that happened long ago. He says he does not feel like attending the party, number one, and says he will not attend. The comment with the fiery face is shown again. The scene cuts to the party on ten fo in 10 forward, where Riker is full of himself and telling a group of people that does not include Guinan the harrowing tale when his ship was without shields and phasers facing 40 hostile ships. Data interrupts to correct the number to two ships that were rather old and very slow. Riker takes the corrections in good spirits and asks Guinan at another table whether he or Data are right. Guinan avoids to choose sides by saying she does not remember. Two crewmen step up to entertain with a spotlight shining on them. Riker seems to like the show so far. In Picard's office, a young yeoman enters to tell him a strong magnetic field has ripped into the the young man with the really bad with a really bad haircut, says he cannot remember the technical term. Picard tries to help him remember. The scene cuts to the comet, now with a very clear face that looks a bit like Q's. Back at the party, the two entertaining crewmen are telling a tale concerning sea nymphs when the female character forgets her lines. Then both actors look like they have forgotten their lines. Picard enters the bridge, where Troy and Wesley inform him of an unusually strong energy field that is heading towards them. Troy calls it a fury, and it will be upon them any minute. Picard orders shields up! and yellow alert, but Wesley says he does not remember how to initiate a yellow alert. Worf says, shields up. Picard orders Riker to the bridge immediately, then asks why everyone seems to be unable to concentrate on their jobs tonight. 
the ship is rocked by the energy field. Picard tells Worf to go to Red Alert. Riker enters the bridge carrying Data in his arms. Data does not seem to be able to string a sentence together. Picard orders Wesley to warp out of the area in any direction. Wesley suddenly has Data's skin color and is sweating. He does not comply with the order. Suddenly, Picard says his head is on fire and finds himself turned into a mythological half-man, half-goat. Picard runs off the bridge and into his office, where he comes face to face with Q, dressed in a red and blue naval officer's uniform from the 17 or 1800s. Q says he does not like Picard anymore, and as far as he is concerned, the honeymoon's over. He asks Picard who the people are in the photo frame he was looking at earlier. Picard appears to be unable to respond. Q asks him if his memory is failing him, if his mind is not serving him as it should. Picard is almost completely a goat now. When Q asks him whether he remembers who Claude and Christine are, all Picard can say is, my parents. To which Q says, not anymore. Q and Picard, in goat form, enter the bridge where Q says he and Picard are off for a homecoming and no one should wait up for them. They disappear from the bridge in a flash. Picard finds himself on the streets of Paris, back in human form, in his uniform. They are cur the streets are curiously empty and he grabs a loose newspaper. He thinks if the newspaper dates correct, his father is still alive. He makes his way for home. He enters and sees his father and mother in the next room. He says, hello, Papa. Picard's father does not recognize him. When Picard says he is his son, Jean-Luc, the father says he is not and calls up to the second floor for his son to come down. A young Q comes down, who father and mother recognizes as their son. When Picard hits Q in the face, a mask comes off to expose a white, sinister-looking spirit with the cosmos floating out of his head like smoke from a chimney stack. Picard punches the ghoul in the face again, and they both disappear from the scene. Picard and Q reappear on a stark, rocky, planetary surface. Q's appearance is not normal. He looks like he is made up of space itself, with bla a black silhouette dotted with stars, moons, planets, and nebulae. Q makes it clear he intends to manipulate Picard to the very core, in fact, to the genetic level. It looks like he is unraveling Picard's genes in front of him uh, that's forming, uh, it looks like a double helix. Picard's parents appear as Q twists. Picard changes into a monkey, complete with comm badge, a lizard, an eagle. Finally, Picard pleads with him to stop. Picard accuses him of acting like a child, pulling the wings off a fly, and challenges him to a fight for Picard's very life. Q asks him what he suggests, and Picard challenges him to let his parents choose between Q masquerading as Picard and himself. Despite Q's manipulation of their memories, Picard is confident in the end his parents will see that he is their true son and not Q. Q accepts and whisks them away. 
Meanwhile, back on the Enterprise, the bridge crew is dealing with Picard's abduction. They figure out that Q is back for revenge and has taken Picard for a family reunion in Picard's past. Picard finds himself back in Paris and makes his way back to the Picard household. He gains admittance, admittance to the house, sees that they do not remember him again, and Papa Picard calls Jean-Luc. The young version of Q comes down the stairs again as the fake Jean-Luc, and the contest begins. Meanwhile, back on the Enterprise, the bridge crew is dealing with Picard's abduction. They're trying to figure out what's going on, uh, trying to conjecture what they could do about it. Jordy points out that if Q took Picard to the past, Q could either be, by design or accident, changing their timeline in ways they could not imagine. Back in the past, in the Picard household, the real Picard is telling the story of when he and Papa were out on a boat navigating shallow boulder-filled waters. They hit rocks, and the ship got stranded. They swim to shore. Picard seems to be winning his father over with the correct detailed remembrances, but then Q takes over the story and completes it with even more detail than Jean-Luc remembers. Picard starts to sweat as the evil-looking Q looks on in delight. Riker and Troy have a hallway conversation that discusses the past times Picard dealt with Q and how Picard did what was necessary to save the day. In particular, they mention the time Q introduced them to the Borg. And to save the ship and the crew, Picard had to admit they were outmatched and unprepared for this particular unknown. Tugging at Picard's DNA in his two hands, Q dials up the pressure on Picard to convince his parents he is their son despite his appearance and Q's meddling with their minds. Picard tells of a time he was in a, f in a school fight in frustration over Picard's lack of creativity in his side of the battle, Q demands Picard to do better in this fight for his past, present, and future. Wesley is in 10 forward, speaking to Guinan about the captain. Guinan says maybe she could have stopped Q if she were there, but she has an understanding with Q not to interfere. Wesley repeats the talk on the bridge that the captain may not come back. Q may be bitter enough this time to finish off Picard for good. Guinan says she wishes she could tell Wesley that everything's going to be okay, but she says Q's potential pettiness knows no limits. She would put nothing past Q. In the Picard household, the contest continues. Papa is ready to call the gendarmes again, but Picard starts reciting rhymes, secret rhymes that only the family could possibly know. Papa settles down and starts to believe, but again Q inserts himself and starts reciting the secret rhymes. He continues until he mentions a very specific rhyme Picard cannot recite. Q goads Picard, but he refuses to re recite the request. Papa and Mama Picard are very upset. Q says if Picard can't, then he can. Q tells the painful story of the death of Picard's younger brother, Claude. Picard feels responsible because Claude died alone outside when Picard refused to divert his attention from model shipbuilding. If Picard had given his brother just a little attention rather than an old ship in a bottle he no longer cared for, Claude 
would not have gone outside and fallen into an old well to his death. The unfeeling Q even finds the ship in a bottle that Claude had in his hands when he fell to his death. Picard's parents recognize that Q is not their son, and that Picard is, despite his age and their altered memories. Q, having lost the contest, whisks them away in a flash. On the Enterprise, Worf and Riker talk about the possibility that after Q is done with Picard, he might come back for the rest of them. Worf suggests maybe they should move away from the abduction site. Riker says given Q's powers, they could never run far or fast enough. They decide to remain where they are and await the captain's return. Back on the rocky planetary surface, Picard is practically gloating over beating Q. For beating Q, he demands that Q erase any memories of the contest in his parents. Q agrees and says he still has much to learn about humans. To repay the lesson, Q offers Picard a gift, the return of his dear brother from the dead. Uncertain and torn, Picard finally accepts the gift. Q says good. Picard will not regret it. In a flash, the Enterprise crew's clothes change from Starfleet uniforms to civilian clothes. Reality has changed, and Riker is now the captain of a rebel ship that is fighting against what Starfleet has become, a tool of terror wielding a tool of terror wielded against non-humans by a vicious dictator named Claude Picard. The Enterprise is surrounded and destroyed by Claude Picard's task force of ships on a mission to wipe out any opposition. Q brings Picard back to Earth and, Picard, and to the Picard home to see how things have changed with Claude back with the living. As an early teenager, Claude was swept up by an Earth anti-alien movement through his Hitler Youth-style fanaticism, he is able to rise up the ranks of the movement to the point that he becomes God-leader of the movement. Picard, of that reality, tries to stop him multiple times. Early on, he met with some success, thwarting Claude's attack on an orphanage. Later, Picard gets beaten up when he's identified as an enemy of the movement. Claude says he will take care of the problem. In a climactic confrontation, brother versus brother, Claude pulls a phaser on Jean-Luc and prepares to fire. The scene takes place outside, and through Q's intervention, Claude is standing in front of a hole in the ground. Q pops into the scene between the two brothers, and Claude is frozen in time. Q tells Picard that 15 years from this day, Claude will confront the Enterprise as the leader of a very different sort of Starfleet than Picard knows. He tells Picard it's all up to him now. Picard struggles with himself and finally tells Q to proceed. Q calls up a wind that blows Claude into the pit where he breaks his neck. As Picard and Q look into the pit, they see a boy dead and holding a ship in a bottle. Q says, who says there's no God? The scene cuts back to Picard's office on the Enterprise, with Riker asking him whether he will be attending the party. The crew put an awful lot of work into it. This time, a much less troubled Picard says he will attend. Q is in the room, apparently not seen by Picard or Riker. He says, that's my gift, Picard. 
I free you from your past. Wear it in health. Until next time. <laughs> the end. Yeah, so this episode, or this issue is a little bit like um, Christmas Carol. And that uh, Q is the ghost of Christmas past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it's like that. Um, and that's not a that's not a criticism. It was good. I liked it. Right. Um, and of course, the interesting thing is, um, wasn't a Christmas Carol showing what things would be like without Ebenezer? Yeah, I didn't say it was exactly like it. Well, no, I, that, no, that's fine. And I'm just pointing out that this one, not not no, no criticism intended, just this one is showing what it's like with uh, Picard's brother in place. And isn't it interesting how the presence of one person could end up making such a difference in the future? It's the butterfly effect, my friend. Butterfly. Oh, my God. You're right. You're right. It's the <laughs> butterfly effect. Yeah, I kept I kept thinking of the, uh, you know, you always hear people, if you could go back in time and kill Hitler, would you do it? Right. And this was kind of proving that, yeah, you probably should. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good point. Which I thought was funny because you always hear that, you know, you shouldn't kill Hitler because things could be so much worse than what they were. Right. And then yet this story is basically telling you that, no, you should have done it. If you get the chance, do it. Claude Picard, Adolf Hitler, same guy. Well, something that's very interesting that you you mentioned that scenario. Uh, If World War II didn't happen, if Hitler wasn't around, then exactly how much of a dominant world power would the U.S. have become? That's a good point. Because basically uh, Europe, Japan, mainly Europe, though, um, a lot of the manufacturing base was, like, blown to bits. Um, so in a lot of ways, we, we had a big advantage for a lot of years there as uh, as Europe was rebuilding. And, of course, the tables turned, didn't it, when they had better stuff because they had all new uh, infrastructure and we didn't. But anyway, interesting. Very interesting. So um, may I ask a question about Claude you, in general? You may. Um, who? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. We've never heard of Claude before, have we? No, and in his little family photo that showed Picard, Claude, and his parents, you Where never saw Robert, brother? which exactly. is his older brother. Exactly. I agree. Um, I think Mr. Delancey uh, handily uh, forgot about at least the episode titled uh, Family. Was that the second episode of uh, season four? Second episode of season four, right, which came out October 1st of oh 1990. Oh, man. And You're... so... Oh, you're one-upping me big time on that one. Okay, cool. Yes. Well, only because I looked it up. Because (laughs) I wanted to see if that episode came out before this comic. And this comic, I see some things that say it came out in December of 1990, and then other ones just say 1990. So they might have came out right at the same time, and maybe John Delancey didn't know about that yet. Sure. And he obviously wrote this way before the comic came out. So, Right. Just like they they wrote the episode way before... The episode was released. So, true, true. So who knows which came first or if they were just coincidentally done in tandem. But it is odd that, that you know, they both introduce a brother, but neither one references the, the other. same one. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and the thing is, I, I think that family episode was a really excellent episode. I really thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, you know, seeing that glimpse in the in Picard's family life like that and his relationship with his brother. I think that was great. Um, and in a similar way, I really like this comic. I, I really like the storyline. I enjoyed it. Good. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> right. Yeah, you, you sound always... somehow less uh, less uh, enthused about it than I. Well, I, I'm I'm kind of like what you were saying earlier. Uh, what are the chances that just because this one boy di- didn't die that he became a dictator and was able exactly. to take over the whole Federation? Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. That that part I had a hard time swallowing. Yeah. Another part, um, another tie-in uh, to Federation history that I wasn't sure was there or not. Uh, didn't the Enterprise TV series introduce um, a faction within Earth that were anti-aliens? Yeah. As I recall. But that would have been way before this time period with Picard. Right. Uh, as a young man, right? I mean, that. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it yeah. had to be. Yeah. So. I mean, there is precedent in this story for uh, an anti-alien Earth movement, but different time periods. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure none of the other TV series ever dealt with that because we were all supposed to be one happy right. federation, that there exactly. was no <clears throat> no racism or anything anymore. Right, even towards extraterrestrials. Right. We had gotten past all that. But the interesting thing about Enterprise is at least, you know... It was far enough in the uh, in the past that uh, we're still crawling uh, out of our adolescence into uh, an adult race. Right. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Right. Um, another thing that I thought was kind of interesting is um, in the way it was written and the way it was drawn when Picard was being turned into a goat, I really got the feeling that Picard was uh, – was really put out about that. I mean, I had the feeling that he was frightened. I mean, he was really terrified, maybe even. And it seemed like was it, it was on. hurting him. I, I I got the feeling like he was in pain. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it seemed like it, it was seemed like it was painful. It seemed like it was terrifying for him. Um, it was kind of intense. So, um, I mean, he was done. He was done things to people before, but. You know, I mean, definitely the tone that they were trying to get across at the beginning is trying to say, this is a this is a more intense cue than we've seen before. Uh, at least that's, that's what they wanted you to think. A little bit of misdirection by uh, Mr. Delancey. Yeah, this was uh, definitely a uh, farewell at Farpoint version of Q. Where yeah. He's yes. much more malevolent than he is yes. in later episodes. Yes, he was a nasty guy in Farpoint. Yeah. Yeah. But they toned him down with like Cupid and the other <laughs> more comical episodes that he was in. Exactly. Right. A little bit more of the Trelane. Exactly. Uh, of so Trelane why do you think they uh, drew him the way they did where when he wasn't Picard, past Picard, they always depicted him as being, like you said, a uh, looks like his body is made out of space itself. And I think that that is something that they always wanted to do on the TV series, but never had the budget or never right. allocated the money to it. Because if you think about the Q continuum, I mean, that kind of makes sense. I mean, if he's going to show his true self at all, he's going to be—he's not going to be human. 
So, I mean, he still had a human outline pretty much, kind of, except how his head kind of trailed off like smoke in the air. But if you think about it, I, I thought it was kind of cool because, like, you know, maybe that's a little bit more like what the Q's real state looks like. Uh, anyway. Yeah, no, I thought it was I thought it was a very cool visual. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I thought uh, the artwork on this was was pretty good all the way through. I thought. It was. Uh, again, a little bit of trouble with coloring, with some of the colors, especially at the beginning for some reason. Yeah. That you know, Data was colored flesh toned. He was, yeah, well, uh, right, <laughs> Caucasian flesh tone, and uh, right, and and that was that was like, what what are they doing? I mean, that's not Data. I mean, of course it was it was drawn like Data. It's just the color they got wrong. Right. And then there was one scene where Wesley looked like Data. I yeah, mean, from the standpoint of a skin scared. color. He, yeah, he was scared and he was forgetting his memory. But but why would that make you look like you're kind of white, silver, metal? You ever heard of white as a ghost when you get frightened? Uh, white and, and metallic as a ghost? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was a little odd. Another thing is that, that, that yeoman that comes in and tells Picard that there's a magnetic uh, whatever before he forgets. You mean yeoman skater? Was that his name? Skater? No, but he had a skater haircut. Oh, I got you. I, I, I was going to talk about his haircut. This is the worst haircut I have ever seen on anybody, and this guy is supposed to be a Starfleet yeoman. <laughs> well, you know, that skater look was pretty popular in 1990. No, was it? <laughs> it looks bad. So, remember when uh, back then when, when some of the kids had kind of like a mushroom haircut? Yeah. So, they had a lot of hair on the top. I'm just kind of describing this to some degree for folks on the uh, the, the vast viewing uh, audience, listening audience, uh, that, that may not have the comic. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like a mushroom haircut where you're kind of shaved low on your head, you know, where, 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 where your hair is the lowest. And then you got kind of kind of thick uh, hair on top coming down and kind of cut off. So you kind of look like a mushroom cap haircut. That's what this guy has, and I hate him. He looks like an idiot. But I'm almost expecting that if he turned around – his uh, his uniform pants would be riding really low when you see his butt crack. <laughs> or at least his underwear. Okay. Next to that style of haircut, that particular uh, fashion decision that many uh, young men make is really annoying. <laughs> I, I do not need to see your underwear. Get a belt. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that... Having his underwear showing uh, would be a, quite a feat in that onesie <laughs> uniform that they're wearing. Those aren't onesie uniforms. That's a tunic, isn't it? Uh, no, it's I not the jump. It's not the jump suit. Still... It's not the jumpsuit. Is it not? I don't. I don't think so. I thought it was. I I, I think it's black pants and a uh, and a tunic. And they don't oh. they don't have the jumpsuits anymore by this point. Okay. And another thing, well, that's that's what I think. I may be wrong. Um. But another interesting thing is uh, Riker is carrying Data. Yeah. Now, isn't Data kind of heavy? He's a robot. That's what uh, I would think too. But but Riker's a – he's a manly man. He, you ain't kidding. He is a lumberjack, man. He has a beard, a... man. That makes him strong. <laughs> he's Samson or something. <laughs> I don't know what he is. But but he, he, he is he is drawn uh, quite burlier than, uh, than Jonathan Frakes ever was. But – in this comic. Right. Quite superhero-like. And apparently he has the strength to carry a, a, a humanoid robot. 
Yeah, I thought that was weird too. Yeah. I'll stop talking. Go ahead. Um, really, my um, I was wanting to ask you if if we ever got an explanation of the Guinan Q dynamic. I know that it's kind of hinted on in um, uh, what was that episode? Oh, it was the Borg episode where Guinan and Q have a little back and forth and they act like they know each other and that yep. Q is almost afraid of her in some way. Um, did they ever give us any explanation on that or was that just a dangling thread that was never... I think that's a dangling thread. Um, another thing um, in Generations, when Guinan knows that something changed or that... Uh, no, I'm sorry. Yesterday's Enterprise, when she just knows something has changed, although if she was human or even humanoid like i mean how could you know that i mean uh, reality was changed right um and then and then another one was in generations where a, sh a sliver of her was in the nexus or something whatever right um and, and i always knew that they had a dangling thing i mean didn't didn't uh didn't guy at one point tell somebody that picard and she has a relationship that goes beyond I don't know, time and space. I forgot what she said exactly. Yeah, something like that, implying but, that there was a, a past. Oh, a big past. And something, a very, uh, you know, a magic box or something there that they didn't talk about. Um, I knew she was different. I knew there was something unusual about the alien race. But now seeing this, and then especially that part that you talked about before, where she was almost like a cat to, uh, you know, hissing at... Uh, at Q and Q actually seemed to be uh, to some degree taken back and you know uh, like, like she's an equal or something. Right. Um, I I didn't realize this before, but there's maybe a lot more to Guinan than we realize. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, when we introduced to her whole race in um, Star Trek Generations, it it had a very poor payout. I thought because now you find out she's just a normal person that was sucked into the nexus somehow yes that's a good point you make a good point there because obviously malcolm mcdowell except being cool enough to be able to beat captain kirk in a fight um um <laughs> uh, he's he's pretty much a normal guy well he's a little he crazy seems to be but well, he doesn't I mean, have well, powers but like he's not does. exactly she's, he's not superhuman right uh, at least as far as we know he isn't yeah, no, they're just basically a long-lived race. I mean, because right. she lived back in the 1800s. Uh, so, I mean, she's lived for hundreds of years, and you right. would assume that Michael McDowell could as well. What was his awesome. name? Soren? Yes, Dr. Soren. Right. Yeah, that he could live equally as long. Right. But, yeah, I, I just thought that that introducing more of her own race and making them into tragic, uh, you know, People fleeing their their planet kind of cheapened her mysticism from the series, yep. I thought. Yep, I, I do agree with that. And then when you see something like this that makes it seem like Guinan is a match somehow for Q, I mean, that's not normal. I mean, that, that's not a normal humanoid. Right. Anyway, anyway whatever. Maybe it's because half of her is still in the Nexus, and that's how she gets <laughs> uh, supernatural powers. Oh, maybe that's it. That rival Q. Maybe. Doesn't make sense. Uh, of course, the Nexus happened later, uh, uh, but, prior but no. to this story. 
chronologically speaking, it happened before, though, because she got sucked during the Enterprise B's inaugural run. Oh, good point. Good point. She's been there a long time, hasn't she? Okay, yeah. good point. But as with everything with the Nexus, don't think about it because it no. doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, Nexus doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, uh, kind of like a constantly expanding uh, supernova that can en- envelop <laughs> multiple star uh, solar systems and the entire universe. Anyway, And uh, everything that in every single Star Trek movie where the Enterprise is the only ship that could that's in the that's in the solar system. Uh that, yes. That was right. another part. Every movie the Enterprise is the only ship in the solar system. Yeah. Not good planning. Not good yeah. planning. Uh of course, I mean the only thing good thing about the 2009 movie is uh The only good thing? No, no. Well, the good thing about that particular scenario or that helps explain it a little bit is obviously they took a pasting at Vulcan. All those ships. Right, and they also said that wasn't the whole fleet. He said that the 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 main sure. fleet was engaged somewhere else, in, in another sector or something. Yeah, which right. which I'm still curious on what what was going on that required the whole fleet at some other place. But well, a lot of it, right? That's another story that hasn't been told yet. It hasn't. Okay, so um, I thought on page 31, the starship in a bottle. Uh, yeah. where Picard's working on star uh, on on sailing ships mostly, but one of the ships sitting there on the on the uh, on the desk when Picard was young and telling his brother to you know get going kid, um, was a starship, uh, a Constitution class starship it, it appeared. Yep. No, um, I didn't even notice that. You're right. And because of the uh, pylon between the nacelles and the engineering section, I think it's a refit Constitution class. That's my theory. I don't know. That's what it looks like. What do you think? Could be. It, it looks like the Enterprise A, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, I thought uh, Q. Okay, I thought Q's line towards the end, where he says, uh, "Who says there's no God?" was a bit sacrilegious, but I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> that, was kind of, that was so Q, you know. It's like, oh yeah, that was just so Q to say something like that. No, he had quite a few good lines. Yeah. Um, I liked it when he, they were changing into flies and rats and ducks oh, or whatever, right. something that was just in the background so they could spy on Claude and his rise to power. Right. I thought that was good, and he even, you know, makes the joke about being a fly on the wall. I, yeah, I thought exactly. I thought those that was a good idea, good right, good funny moment. Yeah, and those are details I had to leave out of the synopsis, or else it would have been even longer if that's possible. <laughs> that was pretty long. Oh. uh Minor point, the photo in a frame, I was just thinking, that is so archaic. I mean, I remember in the original Battlestar Galactica, uh, the, you know, the, the first thing, there's a, there, uh, the first episode, the movie that kicked things off, there was a scene where uh, Lauren Green, Adama, is sitting there going through, you know, this is after the son died, the younger son, had died, and he's looking through all these, uh, these photos, family photos in an album, and it's paper. And the only concession to the future or to high tech is the <laughs> fact that the photos are, are kept against the cellulose paper by little space tape looking, uh, you know, little little corner sticky things. You, you remember when you were a kid? Or maybe you didn't have it because you're, you're younger than me. Oh, I remember that. People photo albums? To, yeah, paper photo albums that would have these stupid little paper 
corner kind of things that had uh, like 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 you'd lick them on one side, and that was supposed to hold the photos against the paper. Yep. Uh, that would last about a year, if that long. <laughs> and then when you opened it up, it would you know the the the, the glue would fail and would come away from the page. Anyway, but. That's what it looked like, those little corner things, but like with space tape. Remember in the 70s when they had that space tape stuff? Yeah, but yeah. I thought that on Battlestar Galactica, all the corners were cut off, so everything was kind of... No, well, like, my, my, my memory might not be perfect, but in this particular one, um, it's space tape holding these photos in a paper book. And it's right. like, and then I see this thing, uh, a photo in a frame. It's like, okay, I mean... You know, I just it, – it's fine. It, it Having a photo in a frame is easy to look at and stuff, and it worked for the for the narrative. But it's just like I don't even use that today. I mean – No, it's – I, I don't, I don't print papers. I don't print papers anymore. I mean uh, print photos anymore. Right. But, but to uh, this comic book's defense, and yeah. in Star Trek Generations, um, Picard does look through a, fo- a family album, and they yes. are physical pieces of paper. Yeah. And in Star Trek Nemesis, he has a physical photograph of himself, i.e. looks like she's on, uh, that he shows Beverly and asks her, do you remember this guy? Right. Uh, So, I mean, there is the precedent of having um, physical paper photos in the future. There is. And, in fact, on Babylon 5, they actually had a scene where – Captain Sheridan is is reading a paper, a newspaper, paper newspaper, um, which we know where that's going today. So, um, I mean, all the all the newspapers are folding. But um, I just want I just want people to get past that stuff. And like the, like the new movie, if they or the new movie series, J.J. Abrams, if they have an opportunity to show something like that, show it on a pad or something. Just just do us a favor. Move out of the cellulose past. But what if uh, what if Kodak is one of their sponsors next next movie? <laughs> hey, Kodak might not be in business, man. <laughs> Have you seen what their stock price is? Like uh, like like pennies. Anyway. So yeah, I, I didn't know that that was such a hot button for you, Ken. <laughs> yeah, you, you make concessions. That's fine. That's all. It's just like I mean, come on. I mean, we we carry our photos around on our on our stinking phone, our smartphones, um, right? Which are just like the tricorders uh, or data pads that they have in Star Trek. More, more like data pads, but yeah, it's like move on. It's like come on, you know, we're we're used to the idea. I mean, we're ahead of some of these shows, but anyway. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Uh, no, I'm done. I'm <laughs> done with my rant. You know what uh, really grinds my gears? Anyway. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're only doing these two uh, issues this episode since they were both very long, and we get a little winded sometimes, so uh, I guess we should close it up. Uh, We won't do any elsewhere because uh, we already did all of 1990, so there's nothing to uh, elsewhere to. And we're running long anyway. Yeah, so next episode, 63, we're going to cover the original series, issue number 13 through 15. Excellent. Excellent. Should be a good one. I'm looking forward to it. All right, then. So uh, until next week, take care, everybody. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. I thought of it again. Yes. Later.
Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.